Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. This message is from Pastor Casey as he speaks to us from Genesis on the dangers of success. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. So yeah, we're, we're uh, about 30 sermons into this series, um, 146 pages of notes we've all gone through together. Um, and many of you guys have been here since the very beginning. Uh, but what I thought I would do is before we end the book today, um, I thought I would recap the last year of messages. And so I've got this thing pretty boiled down. This shouldn't take too very long. Um, but uh, I thought it would just be a cool little time to recap everything the Lord's been speaking to us um, over the last year. Amen. Can you just do me a favor? Raise your hand if you've been here since the beginning. That's super cool. Raise your hand if you've missed, if you haven't missed one. This guy. Oh, I did miss one like three weeks ago. Oh, tag nab it, Dustin. All right. That's, that's frustrating. Didn't even get to make it in my own series. So we started this series uh, by spending four weeks uh, on the creation of man. And if you remember, um, each of those four weeks, we looked at God. Um, he wasn't just creating man. He was actually creating four different institutions. And we took a week on each of those. And, and the first was God um, created gender and God created the family and God created the priesthood and God created something else. It just literally left me. Lord, help me. Oh my gosh. Do I have it on here? Oh yeah, family, marriage. That's right. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, it was a year ago. God created family, marriage, genders, and the priesthood. And in the priesthood message, we saw uh, that there was that is like the first meta narrative from Genesis to Revelation that uh, God wanted to dwell with man and he created Adam as the chief gatekeeper priest to do so. Uh, and Eden was actually a tabernacle, if you guys remember that. And we, we spent a lot of time looking at that and seeing that God was creating priesthood and that you and I, we were meant to be um, kings and priests. And so uh, the second thing we did was we took three weeks examining the fall of man, where we focused on the tactics of the enemy. And uh, then we spent another couple of weeks looking at God's response to the fall and then man's response to the fall. Afterwards, we moved to the story of Cain and Abel. If you guys remember, we looked at um, the uh, root cause of jealousy and we looked at uh, the destructive pattern that jealousy and envy will bring in our life uh, and specifically being jealous over God's favor over our brothers and sisters and over the giftings that our brothers and sisters um, have. We then spent two weeks unpacking the story of Noah and we looked at how Noah continued this narrative of being a priest just as Adam did and Abel did and Seth did and Enoch did. And so we spent one week looking at how Noah operated as a priest after the flood. And then we looked at one of the coolest stories in the Bible, not really coolest, but one of the most interesting stories of the Bible where Noah gets really drunk and passes out naked and his family makes fun of him. And there's a big curse that happens. You guys remember that? And we use that as an example of what not to do don't get drunk, pass out naked, right? That was really the, the whole sermon. And so I spent an entire sermon um, giving you guys uh, what the Bible says about drunkenness. And we talked specifically about alcohol and weed. And then after that, uh, we looked at the story of the Tower of Babel and spent much of our time uh, looking at the importance of our language and our unity together. Following that, we moved to the second major narrative thread after the priesthood, which was Abraham and God's covenant with him, that God would make a nation out of him and in God's timing, in God's way. The next thing we covered was the consequences of Abraham's impatience. And we looked at how Abraham uh, took the covenant into his own hands. When he was too old to have a son, he decided, well, instead of, instead of it coming through my wife, Sarah, which is what the Lord said, I'm going to go make it happen in my own strength. And he grabbed Hagar and had a son. And Hagar's son would be named Ishmael. And that was not the child of promise. And so we looked at the consequences of impatience. God would show up and take care of Hagar. 
even though she was deeply hurt or in, uh, because she was deeply hurt and he would rebuke Abraham. And following that, we looked at the sign of the circumcision, which we saw was ultimately meant to point to the circumcision of the heart, which we experience under the new covenant. We then took some time and we looked at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and we, we saw the importance of pitching our tent outside of Sodom, unlike Lot who pitched his tent inside and made his home in a sinful dwelling. Afterwards, we covered Abraham's fear of man, his mistreatment of Sarah, and God's sovereign protection against Abimelech. And if you remember, that was a story where Abraham basically traded his wife for riches and for freedom uh, to Abimelech, and he actually does it two different times. And each time God shows up, saves Sarah, and rebukes Abraham. Yes, you guys should have been there. Uh, we then covered uh, the offering of Isaac on the altar. And this subject, we covered the cost of obedience and divine ordained suffering, which honestly was probably my favorite in this whole series, if you guys remember it. The next was in stark contrast to the intensity of the previous. We looked at Genesis, Genesis uh, 24, and we looked at Isaac's betrothal and marriage to Rebekah to give us insights on how we are to pursue uh, marriage. And uh, I believe that message was titled A Single Ready to Mingle, if you remember that one. Yeah, you guys might not remember the sermon, but you might remember the title, right? And we looked at how Isaac pursued Rebecca and how to navigate that weird time that most of you guys are in, which is you can get married. Should you get married, how do you go about it? We then spent three weeks covering the life of Jacob, his feud with Esau, and Jacob's latter experience where we took note very importantly that Jesus ultimately is Jacob's ladder. He is the one in whom the connection point of heaven meeting earth happens. And now we've spent the last four weeks on Joseph's life. We saw that he was favored by his father, Jacob, that he was arrogant with his dream, which led him to being sold into slavery and serving a high-ranking officer named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife, if you remember, um, well, she was attracted to Joseph and tried to get him to lie with her. And on multiple occasions, she would try to seduce him, and every time he would say no. And he did so out of honor for Potiphar. And it was really interesting, if you look at what he says, he's like, I've been given so much, how could I sin against my master? Even though he's been sold into slavery, he's still concerned about honoring his master. It's a really stunning picture. Well, Abraham, or um, not Abraham, I'm so sorry, Potiphar's wife, she doesn't get what she wants. And so she starts hurling accusations and racial slurs against Joseph, which takes him from the house of Potiphar into jail and prison. And we saw in the last couple of weeks the importance of not just sitting around licking our wounds, making excuses for why these things happened, but instead Joseph, what he did was he got, uh, he, had, he started having compassion and doing the Lord's work while he was in jail. And two um, people from the high rank, or two high ranking officials from Pharaoh's palace end up trying to commit murder essentially against Pharaoh. And Pharaoh finds out about it, throws them in jail with Joseph. And they're sad and they're dejected, the Bible says. And Joseph takes an opportunity to minister, the Bible says, to these two. And he interprets their dreams. He gives them one encouragement, one it's not super encouraging. He's like, yeah, you're gonna die. That happens. The dreams that they had came to pass. Joseph's interpretation was right. And if you remember, Joseph looked at the cupbearer who had the favorable dream. And he said, hey, listen, when this happens and you get restored to the palace, please tell Pharaoh, please tell him that I'm in here unjustly, unjustly. Please tell Pharaoh to let me out because I was sold by my brothers into slavery through no fault of my own. And then I was put into prison through no fault of my own. And he'd been sitting in there for 13 years at that point, if you remember. And the cupbearer says, yeah, sure, I will tell him. And he gets to Pharaoh and he forgets, the Bible says, about Joseph. Joseph would sit there for another two years until Pharaoh would have a dream. And Pharaoh would have this dream and it was about, um, there was gonna be seven years of famine or seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt and then seven years of famine, but he doesn't know what this dream's about. And so he starts telling the cupbearer all about this dream and the cupbearer says, I know someone who can interpret it. 
And in that series, that, in that sermon that was last week, we looked at God's sovereign timing. We looked at how God uses injustices done against us. He doesn't ordain them, but he uses them for our benefit and for his glory. And so Joseph leaves the prison and he interprets Pharaoh's dream and he tells him what's going to happen. There's seven years where we're going to have lots of grain. We're going to have lots of food left over, but then we better stock up because then there's going to be seven years of famine, not just here, but all around us. And if you remember last week, what we saw was, was Joseph giving a friendly word of advice. He's like, dude, you probably need to appoint somebody who's super wise and good with finances who can oversee all this because you got you to prepare yourself. And Pharaoh says, I think you're the man for the job and says, you know what? You are gonna be elevated above everybody except for me. You will be second only to the throne. And he puts Joseph in charge and Joseph literally overnight goes from the jail to the second in command over an entire nation, thus fulfilling the very dream that God gave him. Now, that's where we left off. Today we're uh, in Genesis 42 and we're gonna cover Genesis 42 through 50, okay? Because it's kind of one story. Um, and we're not gonna cover like every verse by any means. As a matter of fact, we're really only gonna cover mostly Genesis 42 and then we'll hit bits of the different verses. Um, so Genesis 42, verse one. Famines hit the land at this point. Then 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. Because remember, Egypt had stockpiled everything. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, with his brothers. For he said, I'm afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming. For the famine was in the land of Canaan also. So famine is hit. Jacob's land and Jacob's like, okay, let's get your brothers, send them on over there, go get grain, go buy from Egypt. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Now, just as a side note here, before we continue, at this point, it has been uh, 20 years, 22 years since Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. That's the last time that Joseph saw his brothers, 22 years ago. So, uh, but Joseph's brothers, or I'm sorry, but Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them, where he was going to rule over them, uh, and said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have just come to buy food. We are all sons of one man, we are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, no, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, your servants are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest, Benjamin, is with our father today, and one of our brothers is no longer alive. Now, here's what you have to get. They left Benjamin. The other 10 brothers go, Right? Benjamin is really important to Joseph. Benjamin is the only other son that was born to Joseph's mother, Rachel. Rachel, Rebecca, oh my Lord, help me. Rachel, yeah? I'm getting all the patriarchs and matriarchs mixed up, right? Yeah, Jacob and Rachel, that's right, thank you. So Rachel has Benjamin, Rachel has Joseph, but then Leah and some of the other servants have the other sons. And so what you find is Joseph has one younger brother and one full-blooded brother, and that's Benjamin. And no doubt, Benjamin and Joseph were super, super close because of that. And so here's the thing. Benjamin's not there. Joseph sees his brothers. His brothers say, hey, listen, we're all the sons of one man. That's Jacob. We're all from Canaan. One of our brothers has died. And the other one, the youngest one, is with the father. And so Joseph is going, okay, I need to see Benjamin. I want Benjamin. And I don't know what his motive is behind it. It's probably good. 
You can imagine if you're Joseph, these same people who are standing before you sold you into slavery, threw you in a pit, treated you harshly. No doubt, he's probably thinking they're the same people today and they're probably treating Benjamin terribly too. Let me go rescue my little brother. And so he hatches this plan to get Benjamin from where Jacob is in Canaan to Egypt. And this is essentially what he says. It's this scheme. He accuses them of being spies. And when they come out and say, no, 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 we're not spies. Here's our story. He goes, go get your little brother so I can see if your story checks out. And he even keeps one of them hostage. He says, he throws them all in jail for like three days. They come out of jail and he goes, are you ready to go my way? And they said, fine, we'll do it. And so he goes, I tell you what, why don't you keep Simeon, put him in jail. You don't get Simeon back until you bring your little brother so I can see if your story checks out. And so the other nine brothers, they leave. They go back to Canaan with their grain. They eat, they tell Jacob what's going on. Jacob doesn't want to let Benjamin go because Jacob loved Rachel and Jacob really loves Benjamin. And after what happened to his other youngest son, Joseph, he didn't want to let Benjamin go, but he had to because he had to get Simeon back. And so the other brothers grab Benjamin and they make their way back to Egypt. The first point I want to look at today, I've titled the danger of success. The danger of success. When you read this story, it should be in stark contrast to the Joseph that you and I have gotten to know over the weeks. We have spent a lot of time basically preaching up Joseph. Joseph has been killing it. You guys remember Joseph? This is the same guy who had compassion on the cupbearer and on uh, the baker. This is the same guy who wouldn't sin against his master's wife or his master. This is the same Joseph who has been honorable time after time after time and righteous time after time after time. This is the same Joseph who would refuse to elevate himself to manipulate the situation to get him the second position under the Pharaoh. He didn't even try. The door's wide open. He didn't even step through it. He wasn't going to be like his father. Remember Jacob? He wasn't going to be a deceiver and a schemer and a manipulator. Joseph, up until this point, has really been golden. The only mistake we see that Joseph's made is when he was 17 years old, he went and he blabbed his dream to his brothers. That's about it. And here, seven years, this is actually, scholars will tell you it's eight or nine years after he gets elevated to a position of leadership. Famine has now hit the land. His brothers come and he's a completely different person. Now, all of a sudden, he's going to deal with them harshly. Now, all of a sudden, he's going to throw out accusations to them. Something happened when Joseph became successful. Something happened to him when he became powerful, when he became a leader. And I believe that because of success, and the wounds of his past, which we'll cover in the next point, Joseph had lost who he was. Joseph's default up until this point in the story was to be compassionate, honest, and honoring. He wasn't going to be like Jacob, the deceiver. He wasn't a schemer. And all of a sudden, there's a sudden shift in his attitude. The same one who wouldn't sin against Potiphar's wife was willing to sin against his brother. The one who wouldn't devise a clever scheme to get him into Pharaoh's close circle was now willing to scheme to get anything he wanted. The one who had compassion on two strangers being investigated for murder is bringing accusation against innocent people. The same one, after seven plus years of success, seven plus years of leadership, forgot who he was and had turned into his father not Israel, but Jacob. And I think that it's worth telling you now, while you're young, while you're training, while you are um, still in the season of trying to be all that God has called you to be, that the thing that is the most potentially dangerous to you, your soul, and your heart is not your failures, but your successes. Nothing Absolutely nothing can shake you, change you, or break you like success. 
When everyone buys into your hype, when everyone buys into your potential, when everything that you do turns to gold. Remember, that's, Jake, that's Joseph's story. Everything that he did, God blessed. And that's what elevated him. Now imagine that's you and you got dreams, man. And you want to do crazy things for the kingdom. And everything that you do turns to actual anointed gold, man. People are getting saved and delivered and set free and everybody's singing your praises and everyone's coming up to you and like, oh, I'm so grateful for you. Oh, you've changed my life. You've done all these wonderful things. And you start to buy the hype. And I've seen it happen so many times. You start to buy the lie of you. And I will tell you, it's so easy for me to buy the lie of Casey. And I'm so grateful for you guys. I tell people all the time, I have the best group of people to pastor in this whole church. I have the best job in this whole church. Y'all are so extraordinarily, lavishly kind and compassionate and complimentary of me. And I'm super insecure. You may not know that. And so you guys often will come up to me and you will say, hey, you did a really great job. Hey, this really ministered to me. Hey, this was really awesome. And I'm not telling you to stop doing that. I really deeply appreciate it. But let me tell you something. You know how the enemy works with me? All of a sudden I get a little pep in my step. All of a sudden I forget that I was actually just a strung out drug addict on my way to hell on my way to suicide, on my way to being murdered. And that Jesus snatched me out of the flames and made me who I am. All of a sudden, I forget my history. I forget my past. All of a sudden, I stop looking in my heart and go, oh, I see this nastiness in here. Lord, deal with it. And instead, I start thinking, yeah, maybe I do have something to offer. Yeah, maybe I am. Maybe I am really a great minister. Maybe I'm awesome. And now here's the thing. Some of those things sound like healthy things to believe, but I'm going to tell you, the enemy takes them and they make them unhealthy real fast. And I've watched this happen to people who I love. I've watched this happen to ministers and pastors who have greatly impacted my life. And they start to buy the hype. They start to buy the lie. And you guys, you guys give compliments to me. You give compliments to Billy. You give compliments to all different teachers and pastors and workers in our environment. And I'm so grateful. I'd much rather you do that than do the opposite. But the reality is, guys, you don't know me. You don't know what's in here. You don't know the, the times where I am deeply tempted to leave ministry just so I could go make more money and have a more comfortable life. You don't know that I get so frustrated that I just want to start swearing and start hitting things. You don't know that I have to also keep my thoughts captive lest I'm led astray by the lust of the flesh in all areas. And what happens is we, when, when, when people start to, to uh, explain to you how awesome you are, and how grateful they are for you, and you start to see success, when you start to look like Joseph and everything you do turns to gold, and you've saved an entire nation, and not just one nation, but all the surrounding nations because of you and your obedience. You can forget all of those things in here, and you really can start to think that you're what they say you are. And when I got into ministry, guys, Man, everybody told me, this is, this, I was like drilled in this, man. Everyone, the, the, the professors at Bible college, the, 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 all my pastors, anybody who's done ministry and who were older and they were seasoned, this is what they drilled in me. Be prepared for no affirmation and tons of accusation. Ministry is the hardest thing you'll ever do. You're gonna get zero credit. You're gonna feel like you're running in vain all of the time. We're in the seed sowing business, they say. And that your job is just to plant seeds and you're never gonna to get to see them come to fruition. Prep yourself. Everyone's gonna stab you in the back. It's gonna be horrible. It's gonna be painful, but we do it for the glory of God. And you know what? They were, they were wrong. They were wrong, and I wish to God that they had prepped me for the opposite. I wish to God that somebody said, hey, don't buy the hype. You're not that great. When your ministry starts to be successful and when you start to have kingdom impact, 
Don't listen to the enemy. You're not the special one. You're not the star of the show. Jesus is the star of the show. They prepped my heart for failure, but they didn't prep me to handle success. And I'm telling you guys, that's probably going to be your story. I know so many of you and you guys have such giftings and callings and anointings. And man, you guys are humble and you're obedient and you love the Lord so much. And God is going to do tremendous things through you. Some of you are going to leave here and you're going to go plant churches that have major kingdom impact. Some of you are going to start campus ministries across the nation. Some of you are going to preach to thousands and see mission bases planted in the unreached people groups. And when it happens, because it's God's will for it to happen. And when revival comes and partially comes through your hands, it is so important that you realize it's not about you. Do not buy the hype. Everything good that you and I are is Jesus. We died in this equation. Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am by the grace of God. And guys, I want you to get this because there is nothing that will put your soul in danger like success. Failure won't. Failure, you might get a little shame. You might get a little condemnation, but you don't lose who you are. But when things go really well, all of a sudden you can shift. And the scariest part of all is things will keep going well because God will use you in spite of you and you'll never know until it's too late. When those days come, and rest assured they will, and God uses you guys mightily, I want to give you some instruction. I want you to always have the heart of the little guy. I want you to always have the attitude of being the least of these. I want you to always have the posture of a chief servant, not a remarkable leader. I want you to always remain meek, humble, and teachable, and never allow yourself to feel like you're the most qualified person in the room. Never allow yourself to feel like you're the most qualified person in the room because that's what happens. I'm the most knowledgeable. I've been, I've been through the most. I've been the most obedient. That's where we start going. God's blessing me because of my obedience. This is where leaders go. God's blessing my ministry because I'm obedient and because I'm awesome. That's not why God's blessing your ministry. God's blessing your ministry out of grace and out of favor. It actually isn't about you. And I, I'm telling you guys this now because I do know you and I do believe in you. I, guys, I believe in you. You will do extraordinary things. Some of you, it may not be preaching to thousands. Some of you, it may be saving somebody who preaches to thousands. It may be being a great witness. It may be, it may be one day being a mom who raises a son or a daughter who goes out and makes extraordinary kingdom impact. But when you start to see the fruit of your labor, please don't buy the lie. You're gonna keep hearing me say it. Don't buy the lie. It's not you. It's Jesus. And so when that happens, I want you to just file this sermon away so that you can pull it and you can look right at the life of Joseph and you can go, I don't want to be like Joseph who lost who he was when he got successful. Guys, Joseph was a rock star. Joseph was living the Sermon on the Mount. Joseph was killing it until success. Failure after trial, after tribulation, after injustice. He's passing every test. The one test he doesn't pass, success. Joseph, he's the perfect example of what we're talking about. And listen, that doesn't mean we should fear success. It doesn't mean we should fight against it. It just means that we should walk into it with deep sobriety, knowing that if we're not diligent to protect our hearts, we may be led astray. 
You are not to fear it. It's really important. You're to trust God. You're to lean into him. But you're to walk into it with deep sobriety. In the same way that if you're walking in to the rave to go do ministry, you gotta be on alert. So I told you, I think Joseph is the perfect example of losing who he was due to success, but it wasn't just due to success. Point number two, it was due to the wounds of his family. The wounds of his family. While I think the primary reason for Joseph's mistreatment of his brothers in this passage was because of his mishandling of success, I think it was ultimately triggered by the wounds from his past and from his brothers. Listen, no one can hurt you like family. No one. It's often easier to show kindness, as in the case with Joseph, kindness, grace, compassion to the stranger, perhaps the cupbearer or the baker than it is to show kindness to your own family. Family wounds, they hurt the deepest and they're the only wounds that time doesn't heal. You need to get this. They're the only wounds that time does not heal. You may lose a loved one. You may lose your mother. You may lose your father. You may lose your best friend. You may go through a horrible traumatic breakup. The only wound that time does not heal are the ones done by your family. It's because I think that there's a, an expectation in family that you're safe with them and loved by them and that you belong with them. And any time one of those are violated, it results in deep pain that can be very difficult to get over. You have Joseph has not seen his family in 20 plus years. This has been a non-issue for him for over 20 years. It has not kept him from doing what God's asked him to do. And it has not reared its ugly head in times of, in times of trial or adversity. 22 years, it sits dormant inside of him until he's standing face to face with his brothers. And all of a sudden that wounded 17 year old boy comes out to play. Hurling accusation, scheming, becoming who he's not. I said this already, but I think it's worth noting that the reason family can hurt you the most is because you're supposed to be safe with them, loved by them, and belong with them. You may ask, why am I making this point? And um, the reason I'm making this point is because some of you, you actually have Joseph's story. And you've been deeply, deeply hurt by the ones that were supposed to love you, care for you, the ones that you were supposed to be safe with, perhaps a mom or a dad or brothers or sisters, uncle, aunt. And you have these deep wounds inside of you and the temptation for you and I is to just cover them up, to forget they exist, to hope that time's gonna heal it, to move on, to get on with our life. And here's what I'm gonna tell you is that's not going to work. At some point in your life, you're going to have to face your oppressor and your abuser. You're going to have to, because if you don't, what you're gonna see in the life of Joseph is you'll become that. At some point, you're going to have to face the family wounds of not feeling loved, cared for, safe, or feeling like you belonged with your family. And there are varying degrees of that for sure. And I'm gonna to end tonight by sharing a story of redemption. But listen, you cannot wait until it starts to rear its head to deal with it because by that point, it's too late. I said earlier that at some point you're gonna to have to face your accuser or your oppressor. Let me bring very um, clear direction. That does not mean today. And that may not even mean that you have to face them personally, but you will have to face the pain. That does not mean there's gonna be reconciliation, although you should be open to it. That does not mean there's gonna be redemption or restoration of that relationship. 
but it does mean that you're going to forgive and you're going to deal with that pain. It doesn't have to be now. You need to do it um, in an appropriate way at an appropriate time. We have a, a group, I don't ever plug this, but we actually have a counseling group, a licensed um, counseling group that runs out of Gate City. I don't know if you guys know that, called Cumberland Counseling. And those guys are dynamite and they do all kinds of counseling. And some of these wounds that you guys have, they're not wounds that you can just talk about to your friends. They're not just wounds that you can just pray over and one day they're magically gone. Sometimes it takes some deep surgery in your soul to deal with. And I would highly encourage you and recommend you to go see them. They'll work with your income. We'll, we'll try to get you guys scholarships if you can't afford it. But if you have this deep thing in you and you're like, I need to deal with this, you can go see them. Just go to our website, literally just go gatecityatl.com and you will find Cumberland Counseling right there. You're gonna have to deal with it before you become everything that you hate. So Joseph's plan of getting Benjamin to come, it works. And uh, in Genesis 43, we see the reunion between Benjamin and Joseph. And I wanna read that as we continue down the narrative. As he lifts his eyes, this is Joseph, and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out of the room for he was deeply stirred over his brother and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and he wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and he controlled himself and said, serve the meal. And so now Joseph is getting ready to have a meal with the brothers who betrayed him and his youngest brother whom he loves. And this is where things get really interesting because Joseph didn't just desire to see Benjamin. Joseph desired that Benjamin would stay with him. But the thing is, is he's, his brothers don't recognize him and he doesn't want to come out as their brother. He's actually speaking through a translator at this point or an interpreter at this point. So he's not even speaking to them directly. He doesn't want to let on that he knows Hebrew. And so he hatches yet another scheme. And this is what he does. As everybody's eating around the table at dinner, he says, go get the cup of divination. It was a sacred cup in uh, the Egyptian world. And, and the, so the servants grab the cup and he says, go put it in Benjamin's bag. And he goes, and I'll send them along their way. I'll notice that the cup is gone. We will go pursue them, accuse them of stealing. We'll have them empty out their bags. And as Benjamin empties out his bag, Lo and behold, there's the silver cup. That's the story. Joseph begins to pronounce punishment. This is stunning. Slavery. He says, Benjamin, because of your sin and because of what you've done, you're coming back to be my slave. Now listen to this. Through the schemes and selfishness of his older brother, Benjamin would be forced to leave his father and become the slave of a high-ranking Egyptian officer. Does that sound familiar? What if I just changed the name? Joseph had become his brother's. Through schemes and selfishness of his older brother, Joseph would be forced to leave his father and become the slave of a high-ranking Egyptian officer. Joseph had become his brothers. He had become the very thing that, that he despised 20 years earlier. And he did the very thing that brought him such trial, such pain, and such injustice. And that is why you have to deal with those wounds, guys. And you won't know that you became the very thing that hurt you. You'll be justified in your mind. There will be nothing that you've done wrong. And next thing you know, you're doing the very same thing. I have a deep history in my family. If I could just be vulnerable with you guys, um, dear family members 
who uh, are uh, just flat out pedophiles, child abusers. And we didn't know. And when it all came out, it came out and it came out bad. We found out that, it was, that there was a particular family member of mine that was a serial pedophile and had been doing it for years. And when we found out, you can imagine our, our shock, our horror. This is somebody who we loved, somebody who we ran with. But we found out that he was abused when he was a child by his father, by his mother, and by the kids in the neighborhood. And because he didn't deal with the trauma, because he didn't deal with the pain, he never saw it coming, but over 20 years became exactly the thing that tore such joy and tore his life away from him. I've seen this happen firsthand. And in this story, I think it's a, a deep and sobering reminder that we're to deal with our family wounds and that God wants us to deal with those family wounds and he wants to deal with them and deal with them with care and love and he wants to set you free. Now in this particular story, Joseph pronounces judgment upon Benjamin and he says, he says slavery, you will be my slave. But this is where the story takes a different turn. And this isn't gonna end up like the last story where Joseph was sold into a pit and then sold to the Egyptians. No, 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 This is gonna get really redemptive really fast. Judah, I told you guys a few weeks ago to watch his ark. It's my favorite ark in the Bible. Judah, the very brother who said, no, let's not settle for throwing Joseph in a pit. Let's get some money for him. Let's sell him to the caravan of traders down the road. That same Judah pipes up in this moment and he gives this stunning speech and he starts to recount what happened. And earlier he was telling his brothers that they were being treated unfairly because of the sin that they had committed against Joseph. And now he starts recounting to Pharaoh everything that happens. And he says this, he goes, my Lord, that's Joseph. Ask his servants, that's Judah and the brothers. Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father and there was a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead and he is, only, he is the only one of his mother's sons left. And his father loves him dearly. And he starts to recount everything that happens. And he says this, now then, please let your servant, that's Judah, remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. Just let that sink in for a second. The very one who said the pit's not good enough for Joseph, let's get money for him, is now offering up his life. Look at the next verse. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you as a remnant on the earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. Stunning. So we're going to look at the power of sacrificial love. 
Judah distinguished himself as the one willing to be the substitutionary sacrifice out of love for his father and love for his brethren. It's a quote from David Guzik's commentary. Judah distinguished himself as the one willing to be a substitutionary sacrifice out of love for his father and for his brethren. Therefore, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it was this very act of selfless sacrificial love that turned a stony heart of Joseph to a heart of flesh, just like that. And here's the lesson and it's quick. Don't ever underestimate the power of selfless love. And some of you, you have deep familial wounds and you're trying to seek out reconciliation and you're trying to figure out how to forgive and you're trying to seek redemption and you have no idea what to do because the other party involved is hard-hearted towards you. Your answer's right here. Selfless, sacrificial love. It is the only thing that has a chance of turning a hardened heart. The next point I want to look at in this same vein is the power of forgiveness. And I want to do so by just reading a couple of New Testament verses. This is Hebrews chapter 12, uh, 14 through 15. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up and causes trouble and defile many. He says, don't come short of the grace of God by being bitter. He says, let no bitter root spring up in you. No matter how badly you were dealt, no matter how harshly you were treated, don't get bitter because it's falling short of the very grace of God. And he says, and by it, not only you will be defiled, but those around you will be defiled. How about Ephesians chapter four, verses 30 through 32? These were the first verses I ever memorized as a Christian. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Who's ever heard that before? How many times do we preach that? We say it's altar call. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. And we see the power of forgiveness in this moment. Joseph's heart's been turned from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, just like yours and mine was because of Jesus' sacrificial love. And he forgives his brothers. He says, don't be angry with yourself. God's used all of this. He actually used your disobedience to bring me here so that I could save you in the, in the time of famine. That's what he said. And here's the lesson. You are never less like Christ than when you don't forgive. You are never less like Christ than when you don't forgive. Jesus makes it his business to forgive sinners. It's the very foundation of the gospel. Jesus forgave those when he did absolutely nothing wrong. He forgave his abusers. He forgave his oppressors. He forgave the people who, who praised him and loved him and, 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 and worshiped him as God until it became unpopular and they bailed on him. He forgave the very ones who crucified him. He forgave the crowd who was shouting, kill him, kill him. And he forgives. That's what he does. And the command, I think it's hilarious and, and interesting, not hilarious, interesting, that, that forgiveness is not a fruit of the spirit. It's like humility. That's not a fruit of the spirit. They're commands. They're conditional. As a matter of fact, the Bible would say, if you don't forgive, you're not going to be forgiven. You're never less like Christ than when you don't forgive. And I say this because uh, this story, it ends with forgiveness and it ends 
with redemption. It ends with ultimate reconciliation. And we're going to see that in a moment. But I want you to understand it won't always be the case for you. Sometimes it's just going to stop with forgiveness and that's okay. You don't, you don't have to reconcile with your abuser or your oppressor. You don't have to have restored relationship or redemptive relationship. Your job is not reconciliation. I actually have this written down here somewhere. Sometimes you just have to forgive and that's the part you play. You forgive, they control reconciliation and the Lord controls the redemption. And sometimes all you can do is forgive even if they don't want reconciliation. That's okay because that's all that's commanded of you is to forgive. No matter how horribly you were done wrong and rest assured some of you were done extraordinarily, extraordinarily bad. But you still have to forgive and you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for you and you're doing it for Jesus. And real quick, I want to give you just this, we're almost done. We're going to land the plane. I want to give you what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not restored trust. It's not restored relationship. It's not excusing their sin. It's not condoning it. It's not forgetting what happened to you. And it isn't just a feeling. And so when some of you guys, you hear me say, you need to forgive what I hope you do not think I'm saying is it is demanded of you that you skip arm in arm with the person who treated you so wrongly. I'm not saying that. Here's what forgiveness means, to stop holding their sin against them. That's it. Just letting it go. And I realize that can be extremely difficult as somebody comes from a very, very evil family. I understand how difficult it can be. And again, that's why we have tools like Cumberland Counseling available. That's why the Holy Spirit's in you to help you deal with those things. And so in this moment, we just saw Joseph forgives his brothers for doing something atrocious to them. And then the last point is this, and I'm not even really going to preach it. I'm just going to read it. The beauty of reconciliation. This whole story, this whole narrative here is the creation and redemption of a family. And I'm just going to say this as someone who comes from a broken family and doing my best to create a godly family. God cares about the family unit. He cares greatly about it, so much so that he chose to relate to us as a father. He wants to see your family saved. He wants to see your family reconciled. And he wants to see your family redeemed. And I believe that there is an outpouring coming under the spirit and power of Elijah that's coming to bring the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children, children's hearts back to the fathers. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But what you need to understand is revival's coming, but it's probably not going to hit our campus first and it's probably not going to hit our church service first. It's probably not going to get a hit our prayer room first. It's probably going to hit the family unit first. And I am believing with all of my heart that God wants to send revival and use you to send revival in your family. And listen, man, I'm speaking up here like a hypocrite because for many, many, many years until like six months ago, I didn't believe God really cared about my family. I had written them off completely and just said, you know what? They're too hard. There's no way they'll ever get saved. They're too wicked. They're too vile. They're too wrong. And the Lord through a lot of you guys, you heard that story has just radically changed my perspective on that. And I'm convinced if, if we will be obedient, that God wants to pour out his spirit upon our families and heal those family wounds. I don't know what kind of junk you have in your family, but I know that God redeems junk. I have a friend, um, I'm not going to tell you her name, but she was abused by her father as a kid. Really abused, like that kind. And she grew up, just imagine that level of violation. You're supposed to be safe. You're supposed to be loved. You're supposed to be cared for. And her father did the very opposite. She would grow up and she would meet Jesus. She'd give her heart to the Lord. She'd forgive her abuser. And eventually her dad comes to faith. 
like really comes to faith. And if you talk to her now, it's fascinating as she tells the story. I wish I could tell you she is. She may come one day and, and share. But if you listen to her tell the story, her dad went from being the person who violated her the most to the person who feels she feels the most safe with, the person she feels the most loved by because she forgave. He came to the Lord and he repented and repented and repented and repented and repented. And now she has a vibrant, thriving relationship with her father. And she doesn't even think about all of those things that happened when she was just a little girl. Now that may not be your story. That's stunning. But I wanna give you hope and faith that it can happen to you. And here's the deal. It happens to Joseph. It happens to Joseph. Let's look at this, chapter 46. I'm just gonna read um, bits and pieces from 46, 47, 48, and 50. So you get an idea of how the story really ends. Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph. This is Jacob. Jacob's on his way to, to Canaan. They've hugged, they've, they've, you know, Joseph and his brothers, they've completely reconciled. And Joseph actually says, why don't you go get, go get dad, bring him over here, bring the whole family. I've got a place for you here, the land of Goshen. I'm gonna give you land and you guys can, we can all live happily forever after. And so Jacob's on his way back. And it says that Jacob sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father, Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Jacob and his sons would settle in the land of Goshen. And at the end of Israel's life, he would call his sons and Joseph's sons to himself and bless him. And this is what it says in 48, after he blessed each one of them. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one with a blessing appropriate to them. And when Jacob had finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. And the picture is Jacob dies in bed, surrounded by his children and his grandchildren after just giving them a blessing. His family's finally restored. And that's how Jacob dies. And then we get chapter 50. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. That's his son. And also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, is his son, who were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his father, or jo I'm sorry, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to our father Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. And this is how the story ends in Genesis chapter 50. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years old, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Their family dies together in total reconciliation. It's unbelievable. And it gives me hope for your families and it gives me hope for my family. So why don't you guys stand? That is the entire book of Genesis. God creating and redeeming a family unit. Lord, I ask that you would, um, Lord, I just, I just really ask that you would pour out your spirit upon our families. God, I ask that where there are deep family wounds, very legitimate, very valid, God, that you would come as a great physician and heal those wounds, that you would take us by our hand and walk with us through the darkest parts of our life, you would show us where you were. Help us to get healing. Help us to forgive so that we do not become just like our abuser. Mm -hmm. 
Lord, for those in the room who have lost hope for any measure of reconciliation or redemption in their family, I ask God that you would call them to hope again because in you, all things are possible. I ask that you would help us to not grieve the Holy Spirit, that we would not let any bitter roots spring up within us, that we would let all bitterness leave us and that we would forgive one another just as you forgave us of our trespasses and our sins. And Lord, for those in the room who you've given them a dream just like Joseph and that dream is going to call them to be successful, I ask that you would guard their hearts, that you would guard their souls from the deceit of success. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us so powerfully in this book. We just say collectively that we really love your word. We love your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray and all God's people said, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode.